Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Are you ready for an eruption of a podcast. Oh, I am feeling unchained today, Dave. All right. And why is that today, Holly? <laughs> today, we are talking to author Steve Rosen. He's written a book called Tone Chaser on Edward Van Halen. Yeah, it turns out Steve has an amazing relationship with Eddie Van Halen early in his career and got to know Eddie and what makes Eddie tick. He had a professional and a personal relationship with him. They became friends before they got big. So he's got some really great stories and a great book. The, the book is called Tone Chaser and it is out now. It's available at ToneChaserBook.com and Holly and I got into it. And so we had questions and we invited him onto the podcast. And now here we are. But first, you'll find outtakes from this interview with Steve on our social media, on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and on our social media at WDDIM Podcast. In the meantime, you don't need to search anymore if you want to hear some stories about Eddie Van Halen because we've got Steve Rosen in our virtual studios right now. So let's get to it. The book is called Tone Chaser. It's the story of Eddie Van Halen. And we start off our episode trying to figure out what we call Mr. Van Halen. This is the What Difference Does It Make podcast. You, you, you know, it's not Ed, it's not Eddie, it's Edward. You know, he would refer to himself as Edward. You know, we call the phone, hey, Steve, Edward, how's it going? You know, I go, oh, great, man. So typically somebody, the way they refer to themselves is the way they would like to be uh, referred to, I think. so. You mentioned in the book that he said that later on people started just calling him Eddie, but it felt weird. Yes. He, I think he also said Alex used to call him Ed. Of course, their brother. Um, yeah, but he always felt a little funny hearing Eddie. Um, I don't know why. Maybe because he was so used to hearing Edward. Or somehow he thought that maybe those people calling him Eddie felt closer to him, like they knew him on some level. And, and maybe Ed didn't think they knew him. I, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to <laughs> go into his head. Yeah. It was a big discussion. You know, what, what did we call him today? What was your background before you met Eddie Edward Ed? Eddie Edward Ed Lodwig. So... I was writing for a high school newspaper. I was a pretty voracious reader. I was reading a lot of books. In what city? Know. What high school? In what, what state? I went to Culver City High School. Okay. Yeah, so Culver City was like the best kept secret in the West Side, you know. For years, it's like, you know, where are you from, Steve? Well, I'm from Culver City. And they go, Culver City, is that, is that near Beverly Hills? Yeah. And I had no idea, you know. But, I mean, you know, the schools were amazing. It was close to the beach. All the studios were there. And 40 years later, Culver City is now... 
the hippest place in the right in the whole West Side. So I was writing for a high school newspaper. I loved doing that. I was going out to the clubs. I had like a little letter typed up. I sent out to the clubs like the whiskey and the troubadour, golden bear, ice house. So hey, I write for my high school newspaper and you know, we have 1,800 students, you know, they could all be potential people coming to your, to your shows, you know, can I come and review for my newspaper, the Culver City Centurion? And they all said, yes, come on by, you know. The Ice House out in Pasadena, they used to, like, serve me dinner. They go, anything you want off the menu, you know, and they serve drinks. I mean, it was unbelievable. I was just a little high school, you know, nothing, nobody. So... I was reading a lot. I was reading Guitar Player magazine, the early days of Guitar Player. This is like 71, 72. And I remember reading an issue. It was a Dickie Betts article. And I thought, you know what? I can do that. You know, I, did, I don't think this writer's that good. I mean, he was a good writer, but I wasn't, wasn't like I was blown away by his writing. And, and I knew as much about Dickie Betts as he did. You know, I, I can do this. So I started writing. I started sending out reviews and concert reviews to anybody I could, being turned down by everybody, you know, Rolling Stone and Guitar Player and Circus and Cream, all these magazines that I desperately wanted to be in. Finally got something printed in this little softcore, like porn newspaper called the LA Star. And it was only softcore porn because it was one of those newspapers, you know, you turn at the back for the massage ad, you know. I mean, their music <laughs> section was like eight lines, you know. But I sent them some reviews, some live reviews. I remember West Bruce and Lang and T-Rex, and they printed them. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm on my way now. Mm-hmm. So jumping ahead, you know, you use that as a little launch pad. Ultimately, I, I started writing for a guitar player and Circus and Cream, all those magazines that turned me down. Years later, ultimately, I wrote a couple of stories for Rolling Stone. You know, and it just grows from there. I started writing for a lot of foreign magazines, a lot of stuff in Japan and Europe, you know, Germany and Italy, Spain. And, you know, it just kind of grows. And in 77, I meet this Edward Van Halen. And by that time, I'd been writing for about four years. I'd already been writing for Guitar Player. And um, we meet on a June night in 1977. I've been writing for four years. I've met a lot of amazing guitar players by that time. So I wasn't easily impressed. I didn't know how he played. I didn't know that he was this Da Vinci of the guitar. I'd heard of Edward Van Halen. Everybody had heard of Van Halen, but I'd never heard him play. That would come when I, I subsequently somewhere, I saw the band play live after that. Then the first record comes out several months later, February 78, and uh, I hear it. And again, I write about it. I'm not blown away. I mean, look, man, I've heard Richie Blackmore. I've heard guys doing fast shuffle. I've heard the best guitar players in the world. I grew up on those guys, you know, Jeff Beck and Clapton and Hendrix and Pete Townsend, you know. So I listen, I go, ah, he's, he's good, you know. And, and then I listen the next day and I, and I realized what it was I was missing and maybe not wanting to recognize because I thought that maybe he was he spelled the death knell of all that classic rock that I love, which it sort of did. long answer to a short question. I'm doing quick math because if you were in high school in the early 70s, you guys were about the same age, right? Like We were. were. Ed was two years younger. Yeah. Though he professed to be four years younger. When he and Alex were 24 or 
something. They they claimed they were 22 because somehow being 22 was going to make him more hip or, you know, cooler to fans. Like it really mattered if he was 22 and not 24. And that's how he would think. That's what was so unbelievably charming about the guy thinking, well, if they think I'm two years younger, man, I'm gonna, they're going to think I'm even that much better. I, you know, I mean, it's just remarkable to me that he would think like that. Do you think it was because he thought he should have been better? I absolutely think it was that reason. I don't know if he thought he could have been better, but I, I, I think that being two years younger gave him like a, an escape route, sort of peripherally. Yeah, if they don't think I'm that good, well, I'm only 22. Hmm. Wait till I'm 24 and then hear me play. I've interviewed hundreds of guitar players and I've never heard of any of them lying about their age as a sort of a defense mechanism in case, you know, uh, fans don't think they're good enough or something. Oh, I kind of thought about it from the other side. He could be still could be considered a boy genius. Exactly. I think he thought maybe on, on that as well. Yeah, by being 22, oh my God, people, look at me. I'm 22 and I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Just imagine what I'll be doing when I'm 24. That could have been part of it as well. You know, and I try to write about it. He was humble and he was modest, but he knew who he was. He knew the, those talents he had, so he never tried to diminish those. You do mention that Eddie gave his blessing. I want you to be the guy to tell my story. Okay, so first of all, how long into the relationship were you? So I met him in 77, and I think I, I literally typed up a paragraph. Uh, I, Stephen Rosen, I'm going to write Edward's authorized biography. Nobody else can do it. I think that was 84. That was literally one paragraph. I signed it, and Edward signed it. Uh, so that's seven years. And then I recount the story about going to Edward's lawyer, and there's a little bit more of a formal contract run up, and that was only two or three paragraphs. I think that was 85. So seven to eight years. Um, so it was a, a fair amount of time that had gone by. Um, and I, you know, I just sense that there are going to be writers coming out of the, the woodwork wanting to write a book about Edward. And not that that was my main reason, but I just thought that nobody else was in a position like I was. Nobody else was hanging out with him, you know, almost daily and, and doing all these interviews with him. And I thought I could write a good book. I, I could write a book that nobody else could. And so when I approached him, I said, Edward, you know, uh, other guys are going to approach you to write a book. I, I'd like to write a book on you. And he goes, yeah, man, I, I can't think of anybody else I could do it. And that blew me away. And uh, so we signed that first little contract. And then um, later on, he actually gave me some money. That little um, 1099 form is in, the, mm-hmm. is, is in the book, too. Um, he gave me five mm-hmm. grand, which back in 85 is a lot of money. Um, you know, that was, you know, more than generous. And he realized that I was working on the book, gathering interviews, and, and I had. I had I spent a fair amount of time by then kind of putting the book together from that first contract in 84 to 85, and he recognized that, and that blew me away. Just the fact that he recognized it. Look, the money was fantastic. I'm not going to lie to you, but just the fact that he recognized what was going on, that at the end of all this, it was going to be this book. That's what was important to me, and I kept working on it, kept working on it, you know, and again, I write about this, and Ed, you know, you know, we need to sit down and, you know, I, I need to talk to you about all this other stuff that we don't talk about in the regular interviews for the magazine. I wanted to talk to him about his family and his relationship with his mom and his relationship with his brother. And what was he like as a seven-year-old Van Halen back in the Netherlands and coming to America? And I mean, God, there was just so much. And part of me understood it and part of me couldn't understand it all. Part of me thought, you know, when he said, well, man, now's not the right time because I've, we're just about to go in and do another record. And if we do, do the book now, that means that record doesn't get talked about. Or if they were between records, it's like, well, if I do, the, do it now, 
people think my career is over, you know, because books only come out on artists when their career is over. I try to say, Ed, that's not true. That doesn't happen, you know. And then at one point, he said, hey, why don't we do two parts, you know, from the first record up until the first family record? And then from then on, I go, Ed, that's an amazing idea, you know, because it was germinating in his head. He approached me with that idea. And it was so hard for me to instill that idea in him that there's this book and it's important and we need to do it. Because I think with Ed on any given day, it wasn't important or I don't have time for it or I'll never have time for it. You know, so at the end of the day, it never materialized, obviously. And it goes back, you know, kind of how like what we were talking about before about how he sensed himself as a 22-year-old or this 24-year-old. I don't know if he had a really a sense of his own legacy or who he was or what he had done to change electric guitar. I don't know. I think about that, you know, what would that book have been compared to what this book would have been? It would have been entirely different. Obviously you don't have any of the intervening years, though I never spoke to Ed from 2003 to, to 2020, but it wouldn't have been any of those other years post 1987 or 88 when the book may have come out. I think most of it would have been Edward's uh, dialogue, with very little narrative from me. So it would have been a different book. It would have been a really good book, but it would have been different. So this is the book that was supposed to have been. Because you came from a musician standpoint, do you think it, he thought that the book would focus more on the musicianship of Eddie Van Halen instead of going back to his childhood and digging up all those old whatever stories that, uh, that he wants to avoid or maybe not talk about? I never thought about it. And I always, whenever I talked to him about doing more interviews, it was never like, Ed, you know, I need to do more interviews with you because I need to know exactly what kind of paint you used on the the first guitar, exactly how you wound your strings, man, or what, exactly how you, you know, where your tone settings, you know, or who were your influences and what is this songwriting like? All that stuff was important. But that's really not the book I wanted to write at all. I thought really I had covered most of that stuff in my interviews. You know, I thought I could just pull from that. Because I don't think that's the kind of a book she would have wanted to have done back then. Every time I brought up, Ed, you know, I need to talk to your mom, your dad, I could feel like his eyes light up. I think he wanted that, you know? I, I think he wanted me to talk to them. At one point, you know, I, I talk about interviewing his mom, and he says, well, I'd like to be there. As if, one, he wasn't going to be there. Two, I wasn't going to invite him. Or three, he wouldn't be welcome. I mean, you know, that's how he thought. That was just so amazing to me. So that told me that he really wanted me to talk to his mom. And he really wanted someone to get those stories down. And again, he talked about his dad. You know, hey, Steve, did you ever interview my dad? I go, well, no, Ed. I asked you twice, and you never set it up, you, you dumb idiot. I didn't say that to him, but I mean, I got angry. He's like, Ed, what do you think I'm doing here, man? I'm, I'm, and so I hope he didn't think it was going to be a book about his musicianship. Certainly, you know, you can't extricate one from the other, um, but that's not the kind of book I wanted to write at all. Subsequently, you know, we see those other books that have been out there, fantastic books, you know, Brad's book and Paul Brandingham's book. I mean, those are amazing books. Those guys are incredible writers. And they dug so much deeper into that musicianship thing than even I did in my interviews with him. What was cool about my interviews that I did with him back in the day is that those were some of the very first interviews he did, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about tapping and talking about potting his pickups and building guitars and stuff, you know? So then it was kind of a new kind of vocabulary that that was being introduced. And that's what was so cool about it. 
Oh, I want to write a book like the book I wrote, you know, but write it back then with all the additional interviews of him and his family. We should read that stuff he says about his mom. It's like, and his mom's family, like, well, what's behind that? And that's all gone, right? I mean, that, no one can ever talk about that now. I mean, Al, right? I mean, yeah. you know, does he have any cousins or nephews? I mean, I mean, if he does, I'd imagine they're pretty old, right? Back in, in the Netherlands or whatever. So those stories are gone forever for the most part. Have you reached out to Alex to kind of fill in some of those gaps? I have not. Do I think that Al and Wolf and, and Valerie have heard about the book? Probably. I mean, you know, Wolf is on his social media pretty actively. Hard to believe he hasn't seen the book or some mention of it. But, you know, Ed talks about him in the book when Wolf is only 11. and says, hey, man, my kid, I taught him how to play drums, you know, in three minutes. And he plays with this little drum thing. This guy sounds like John Bonham. Al, again, there's one little episode in the book. Van Halen, we're going to open for Bon Jovi in Europe. I think this is 95. Al says some things about Bon Jovi. I print them. Ed says to me, hey, man, Al fucking hates you, man. You shouldn't have printed that stuff. You should have known better, which really pissed me off because for, for 27 years, you know, I've been interviewing and hanging out with Ed, and he's had been telling me stuff, and I never, ever divulged any of those things that he ever tells me. And then this little bit comes out where Al says, yeah, Bon Jovi, you know, they're lucky they have us on the tour or something like that. And Edward comes down on me. I mean, that, that, that made, made me angry. So does Al still remember me as, yeah, that fucking Rosen who wrote that stuff about Bon Jovi? I don't know. Valerie, you know, I thought I had a nice relationship with, and we played Scrabble, and she gave me a cat. She obviously loved Edward. I mean, I, I don't know. I mentioned earlier, be, be careful what you wish for. As much as I would love to talk to those guys and say, hey, you guys, you know, have you read the book? Can we talk? Is there anything you want to talk about? It, it could come out negatively, and I just, I don't need to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I wrote an honest book, you know, and, you know, hopefully they'll recognize that someday. I don't know. We are talking with Steve Rosen, the author of Tone Chaser. It's a story about Eddie Van Halen. He's a guitarist. He was in Van Halen. We are going to take a break right now, and we will be back shortly. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with our guest, Steve Rosen, author of Tone Chaser. Going back to the very beginning, you gave credit to the booker at the whiskey for introducing you to Eddie. You said she had a Yenta-like radar, and that's why she introduced you to him? Michelle Meyer, my God. You know, I think of her all the time. I'm trying to think where I first met Michelle. I must have met her at the the whiskey. Uh, As I write the book, I was at the whiskey a lot. I was there every week, you know. All these bands that we now know, I mean, bands that that were huge later on, Back in, you know, 73, 74, 75, a lot of these bands, you know, they were just coming out with first and second albums. So record companies and publishers were desperate for you to interview them. And on the other side of that, they weren't playing the forum. They weren't playing even the Santa Monica Super. They were playing the whiskey on off nights. So, yeah, so I was there a lot. I, I, I must have met Michelle. Somehow I, I, I told her that I was playing in a band, and she also booked a couple other clubs, Madame Wong's East and Madame Wong's West. Madame Wong's East was a pretty hip punk club at the time. I mean, there were a lot of pretty heavy punk bands playing there. And she booked my band, never having heard us, uh, into both clubs. And I owed her. I loved her for doing that. I brought her flowers. I, you know, I mean, I loved her for doing that. Michelle was a yenta, a thousand percent. She knew every band worth hearing. She knew I was writing for Guitar Magazine. So I'm there this noon night in 1977. To see uh, and hear Steve Trick record a live record. And this is right before Steve Trick records the live at Budokan record, right before they blow up. It's fairly well known, but nothing like they would become a short time later. So I'm there, and uh, she comes up behind me, she taps on the shoulder and says, There's somebody you have to meet. He's upstairs. So we go upstairs to the whiskey dressing room, which are these famous garbage strewn graffiti walls, smells like a thousand years of cigarettes and urine on the walls and empty beer cans. I mean, it's rock and roll. I mean, the place is uh, like a museum. You know, we walk in, and I'm there with my brother, Mick, and there's this guy over in the corner, and, um, you know, I look at him, and, and again, I try to remember if I recognize this person as Edward Van Halen. I'd never seen the band play. I don't even know if they'd done any interviews back then, by then, you know, or Cream or Circus. You know, this is 77. I mean, they were still, they were just, Still playing the whiskey and backyard parties. The first record hadn't come out. I mean, I may have recognized him somehow. And all I could think of, well, my God, this guy, and I write, if he's not a guitar player, you know, he's got the most amazing hair, and he's got the cheekbones, and he holds a cigarette perfectly, you know, and he's slender, and he's belled, and he's sleek, you know, it's like, oh, my God. Walk over, and, and she goes, uh, Edward Van Halen, this is Steve Rosen, Steve Rosen. I think you call him Eddie. Steve Rosen, Eddie Van Halen, Godhead, which was her ultimate description for the greatest on earth reserved only for the, the kings of, of guitar. And so we kind of shake hands, you know, and he's smoking and 
I'm choking on the smoke because I get migraines from cigarette smoke. Not breathe it in, you know, and we just start talking. And I hate to over-glamorize it or romanticize it, but it was just such a good conversation. And remember, I, I, I'd never heard him play. So had I heard him play, would I have been a little bit quieter or shyer? I mean, maybe. But again, you have to remember, by 77, I'd interviewed Richie Blackmore and John McLaughlin and Joe Walsh and Jeff Beck and Wishbone Ash and, you know, John Edwards. I mean, I, I interviewed amazing, amazing guitar players. So I wasn't easily, you know, jaded. But it, it, was, just, it was an easy conversation. And... I consider myself a little bit of a snob. I mean, look, I love Blackmore. I love Purple. I love Clapton. I love Cream, the Yardbirds. I knew a lot about those guys. I knew all of, I knew all the records. I knew the deep cuts. I knew a lot about them. So part of me was like almost waiting for Edward to make like a stupid comment about Blackmore or Clapton because that's what we talked about. But he never did. And in fact, he got so deep. You know, he was talking about Richie's, you know, that staccato single note picking thing he does in the vibrato bar. And he understood Clapton's playing and his finger vibrato. I mean, Ed was so much deeper into the music than I was. I thought, oh my God, this guy really knows. I thought, this guy's the greatest. I'd love to be this guy's friend. In the conversation, you know, he runs out of the room and comes back and he's got like a pencil and he picks up some, I don't know, ticket style, you know. Hey man, here's my number, you know, call me. Not let's get together, call me. I mean, I interviewed hundreds of guitar players and not one of them ever gave me a phone number and said, call me. People ask, well, when did it go from being, you know, an interviewee into being friends? And I think that friend thing was maybe there from the beginning, you know, alongside of me interviewing him and being this journalist. The friendship just grows over time. Those are amazing years, 77 to 87. It, it was amazing. Particularly those early years for Ed, the first tour, the second tour, the first two records, he was ecstatic. He was just so happy every moment. I mean, one, he was receiving the accolades deservedly his. The band is blowing up and they're selling records and he's touring and now he's hanging out with his heroes. I mean, that must be just a remarkable feeling. Yeah, it was an amazing time for him, I know. I could, I could feel it. Okay, so you say Ed fit the part, but I've gotten to this without mentioning the lead singer of Van Halen. And I'm just curious as to your impressions of him and what Eddie thought of him, because they're yin and yang. They, it's like Jagger and Richards. They need each other Absolutely. to, they need to feed off each other. What were your impressions Absolutely. of this lead singer, David Lee Roth, and, and what he brought to the mix? I only ever met Dave. Well, I probably met him. Well, what about on that first show? You, you know, when you met Eddie, um, you saw their show at the Whiskey that night. Okay, well, I can tell you, and this is going to bring the wrath of a lot of people down, though I write about it in the book. I couldn't understand it. <laughs> I thought, here's this unbelievable guitar player, and there's this guy up there, and I, I just couldn't get it. I interviewed um, Jim Dandy from Black Oak several times. Black Oak, somehow they were opening for like every band in, around town at the Hollywood Palladium. I think they were opening at the Whiskey. I mean, they didn't open for Van Halen, but they opened for a lot of bands. And I interviewed Jim Dandy, I think, a couple times. I'd seen him several times, and I thought, it's Jim Dandy, but it's not as good. I didn't think he was a very good singer. I, I thought as a front guy, I mean, he was athletic and he moved around. I just thought it was a, he was a little clownish, but I came to realize that he filled that role that Edward was incapable of doing, which is the front guy. Obviously, Edward wasn't going to sing. So Ed was a pretty good singer, and he did sing in, his, in earlier bands. Um, but he wasn't going to be a lead singer. That's not what he wanted to do. When I heard Dave on the first record, you know, and I write about it, I 
I didn't get it. I didn't think Dave was that good of a singer. And again, I tried to describe why I felt that way. Because again, I was from an earlier generation and I was used to hearing Stevie Winwood and Gary Brooker from Procol Harum and Roger Daltrey and Jack Bruce, these astonishingly great singers. And not that Dave had to be this incredible singer, but it just never hit me. As I was alluding to, I, I met Dave a few times and he was a very genial guy. Very, very bright guy. He was clever. He was quick. And people got off on that. And obviously, I missed what everybody else understood because they all embraced Dave. Very rarely would you hear somebody say, God, man, I love Van Halen, but I, I don't care for Dave. You rarely heard that. So, and, and I came to realize that Dave was an important part of that. Dave had a lot to do with the graphics and the look and the videos. And that, that's, that's crucial. All those lyrics, all those melodies are Dave's. I can't take anything away from the guy on, on that level. And the second singer? Second singer, Sammy. Ed was ecstatic when Sammy came into the band. He was really happy. But Ed writes early on. He was never a fan of Sammy's writing. And I mean, really put it down. And I, and, and I was thinking, well, you're going to have a singer in the band and you don't care for his writing? But, you know, Sammy came in and, and, and Ed's writing sort of hit another level on 5150, right? It was sort of that elevation from uh, 1984. And uh, those first records with Sammy were, were really good records. This is going to get me into a lot of trouble, and I write about it as well. I was never a big Sammy Hagar fan. I loved Sammy on the first Montrose record, but he fit perfectly with Ed for what Ed wanted to do. And Ed talks about being able to expand his horizons as an instrumentalist, as a songwriter, because mm-hmm. Sammy, you know, was capable of, of, you know, his ranges were higher and, you know, maybe more melodically inclined. I never would have imagined Sammy Hagar in Van Halen. But Ed did trust you at one point. I mean, he was playing the second album for you before it came out. Oh, my God. Yeah, Ed trusted me. Yeah, he played me that. You know, I heard Women and Children first. You know, he told me about Sammy before anybody knew about Sammy. We'd be talking and he'd go, don't print it. And somebody had brought it up to me that he didn't want you to print it in the magazines. And I go, well, yeah, of course. Of course, I, I knew that. If Ed's talking about Mike or, you know, Dave in some negative way, to be saying negative things about Dave or Mike and those comments being printed in a story I would publish, that wouldn't have been a good thing, right? The record label is going to go insane. They're going to come down on him. Ed's going to come down on me. So I never betrayed that trust, not one time. But then somebody said, hey, you know, man, after you got, after you found the contract for that book, Ed was probably talking about don't put this in the book either. And I never thought about that. But in answer to your question, Dave, yeah, Ed, I think he trusted me implicitly with a lot of stuff that he never told anybody else. I took that to heart, man. I, I never would have betrayed that, ever. And only 17 years later, because a lot of that subsequently came out, a lot of it didn't, but I thought, I have to put that in the book. You know, I've got to write that book. If I don't write that book, then I'm not going to write any book, you know. I have to be honest with myself. So that's why all that stuff came out. And that's why I would leave in the comments in the book, don't print this, because I wanted people to know what he didn't want me to print back in the day and how I did keep that stuff private. Actually, that was fun. When you ask a question that you're embarrassed about now, like, oh my God, I can't believe I was this guy that would, you know, feel uncomfortable. And Holly and I still do this. We'll ask a question or code it with a joke or a little titter to kind of play it off. But this is what you did. And you put that in the book, which is a nice little touch. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I thought it was different. You know, a writer commenting about his own writing to you, the reader. Hey, you may not get it, but I was I was a moron for asking that question, you know, and I'm telling you that. And that's what I put in all those little note sections, you know, blue note and 
heavy note and whole note, you know, I thought <laughs> that's different. You know, I've never seen anybody kind of, you know, reach out from being me as a writer, but looking at me as, as the writer, I'm so, Steve Rosen looking back and God, that guy's a goofball. Why, why would he have asked that? Why would he have embarrassed himself? You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to put myself on the line here. Right. So <laughs> breaking the fourth wall. That's what you do. Exactly. Fourth wall. <laughs> You said oftentimes he would say he didn't want to talk about something, but you somehow knew he wanted to talk about it. That was a fine line. Look, Ed, Ed said, you know, I don't like doing interviews, but I think if the direction was right and he was feeling it, I think he really did like to do it. So when he would say that, yeah, I, 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 I sometimes knew he really wanted to talk about it, but I had to pull that out of him. And there was, there was some amazing moments. Um, that happened with him. There were a couple times when it was too much and, and he would shut down. Or if we'd been talking for a while, I could tell that he was kind of burned out. He was just going through emotions. But yeah, I love those moments, pushing him, you know, and him kind of pushing back a little bit. It's like, okay, this is real. This is honest. Yeah, because with anybody else, you know, they one, they wouldn't ask those kinds of questions. Two, they wouldn't push him. They'd be a little obsequious. And I get that. Edward Van Halen. I, I love those moments when I could push him a little bit or feel like, hey, I could, I need to push this more. And honestly, I wish I had pushed him more. You know, the worst he would have said is, fuck off, then I'm done. You don't think like that when you're sitting across from the guy. Whole different things, saying those things now and what you wish you could have done. Yeah, I love those moments. Okay, so he said, when you asked him about Patty Smythe, he said, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, you know, I should have, I should have asked him because I think he would have talked about it. I mean, that could have been interesting. You know, a lot of people said there's no way that you could have had a, a female fronting the band. Not that she couldn't sing. I thought she was a really great singer. But just that the whole image, you know, would have been entirely wrong. Should have pushed him. You know, when, he, when we talked about some of the family things and his dad passing, you know, I wanted to talk to him more about that. I knew because those moments were, I knew they were never going to come back. Yeah. You know, we talk about his mom and his family. I, I should have pushed more, but it's like. Yeah, well, you certainly had enough for a book. <laughs> and then some. And I got to give a shout out to my art director, Daniel Gray. You know, he picked the font and the spacing between lines is the whole thing. And, you know, the covers. I wanted a book that didn't look like a self-published book, you know, and I, I think that's what we all got. And where can we find this book? Tonechaserbook.com, all one word, dot com. You can find the book on Amazon, eBay, Reverb, and Etsy. If anybody ever goes to Etsy, and if you just go to any of those sites and type in Tone Chaser, you'll find the book. And if anybody out there, if you've read it and you've dug it, please go post a review on Amazon. Amazon loves that stuff, so got to keep Amazon happy. <laughs> Very good. My last question for you. Do you have a personal favorite Van Halen album? That's a hard one. I mean, I love 1984 because I think Ed just grew so much as a songwriter and is playing, and now he's got his own studio. God, you hear those guitar sounds. It's like... like in 1984 to sort of uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon or Super Tramp's Crime of the Century, the who, who's next, you know, where it, it elevates to the next level. Everything they've done before these bands is also amazing, but this is like a new level. I love that record. Um, I actually love the Fair Warning record. Edward is now 
experimenting more with overdubbing, uh, right? He's got time. He's got, now he's got multiple rhythm tracks. You can hear him as an orchestrator and how he thinks harmonically, putting together little parts. guitar player, but there were a lot of amazing guitar players out at that point in time. And why not one of these other guys? And it, it, it's just all these, these unseen parts. You know, it's the personality, it's the thing that he gave off. You know, look at the smile, it's his look. You know, had he weighed 300 pounds and was bald, would he have done that? I don't know. It was the songwriting as well. Things that maybe you're, you're not aware of, just viscerally somehow everything came together. He was the guy, and who can argue with that, really? I miss him, and I'm sorry things happened the way they did between us, but I'm happy I knew him. And now we have this wonderful document of what life was like as Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was so nice meeting you. Thank you. Okay, Holly, so are you more intrigued by the guitar work of Mr. Edward Ludwig Van Halen? I've got to say, Dave, that I've been a fan I was a fan of Eddie Van Halen from very early on, very early on from the very first album. And yes, I loved having some of these questions answered and I liked reading the book and I liked reading the the interviews and I could hear them in Eddie's voice, in Edward's voice. So what did you think? All right. So he's Edward. Is he Edward or I mean, he's Eddie, right? I mean, he's just, it's Eddie Van Halen. To us, he's Eddie, but he always identified himself with Steve as Edward. Fair enough. So... Let me ask you a question. Sure. What's your favorite Van Halen album? I would have to go with 1984 as well. It was the one that just like exploded and I I loved it so much. Uh, Yeah, so it's peak Van Halen. I could still watch that video jump for uh, again and again and again. I never got, never, ever, ever, ever got tired of it because it showed off all their personality uh, of each band member. And I loved, I I loved each and every song off that, that album. I love all those other albums, but it was the 1984 that that did for me. So what was your favorite Van Halen record? You know what? I was not a huge fan of those particular songs that were huge hits, Panama and uh, Jump. Because they were so good? Is that why? No, I know they were good. I recognized the musicianship. They were melodic and people loved it and it made made you happy. I like melodic. (laughs) It made you happy, made people happy. I can't believe I actually asked you this question because I knew you were going to ask me and you know that I'm not going to have one concise answer for you. My first inclination was to go with the first two albums with with Van Halen, the first album. You you know, it's one out. Okay, so yeah, so Van Halen (laughs) one is one record. Van Halen two is a second record. Which one would you prefer? (laughs) Van Halen okay, but three. There, there's a, there's I, should a long, have, I should have said no, Van Halen. Not three. Van Halen three. Van Halen three was my favorite. No, was not my favorite. 
<laughs> but wait, but wait. But wait, there's more. Because there is more. I'm going with one, with Van Halen one. However, you can ask me tomorrow and I might say that uh, that I like some of the Sammy Hagar. You know, I, I was very quick to say Van Halen one was my was my favorite. But I realized now how much I liked 5150. So you have fond memories of those too, but you don't love the the Sammy Hagar years. I recognize they mean a lot to a lot of people. I like those songs, but I was not a Sammy guy. I need I need more personality. I love the the David Lee Roth over the top personality. That's- yeah, and the, those videos were were great. They were hilarious, and it showcased their personalities. And I really enjoyed those too. But I also liked Dreams 5150. You talk about m- melodic. Was that not melodic enough for you? No, that's there's, that's a correct answer. Not, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I like David Lee Roth. I like Melody. I like 1984. You like Sammy. You like 5150. There you go. <laughs> Stand the story. Cut. Boom. Print. No, but done. I made, Too late. Okay. You're, it's done. Res- <laughs> You've already, it's already on the record now. Your I'm favorite- reserving <laughs> the right to change my mind nope, next it's not, episode. It's not going on the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to... All right, I, mean, so, I just needed your. I needed to know where you stand today on your favorite Van Halen album. It will always be 1984. I love. I, I love all the other ones for different reasons, but 1984 is peak. I have senior year, senior year high school. Come on, junior high doesn't mean anything, but senior year high school, 1984. I'm class of '84. How could I not have that as my favorite? I just love your ability to pick one and stick with it. You just, because, <laughs> because I could say something different tomorrow, <laughs> and it I won't matter. hear you. That's right. But uh, yeah, you but just, if you sound like you, if you sound like this is my final answer, yeah, I'm going to believe you. Well, then do that. I can't, just I say, can't commit like that. That just, is, I can't. That is a level of, co- of commitment I just cannot commit myself to. Just say that you love balance as your favorite Van Halen record, and we'll move on. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> That's it. That's a yes. I didn't right. hear that. <laughs> All right, so. Besides talking about favorite records, we have uh, favorite podcasts, which is our podcast. We're a little biased there, but uh, it comes out every week, and that's nice. <laughs> no big whoop. It's nice. It's nice. <laughs> it's, so it's very nice. So subscribe. You can find us at WDDIMpodcast.com. That stands for What Difference Does It Make? Find us there. We have a monthly newsletter. Where else can they find us? You can find us on social media, all social media at WDDIM Podcast and YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. So join us, please. Wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll have another one next week. So we hope you're aboard. Oh, should we do the, um, should we sing Happy Trails on the way out from my favorite Van Halen record, Diver Down? (laughs) That is not your favorite. Oh, yes, it is. Right now it is. Diver Down was great. That was my sophomore year in high school. My God. Have you answered the question? Where have all the good times gone? There you go. All right. So, well, Holly, happy trails to you. We'll happy meet, trails to you, Dave. We we will meet again, I'm sure, next Friday. So until then, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. Happy trails to you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.